You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. man podcast i'm your host doc coyle thank you so much for checking out the show i bid you from cologne germany about i don't know how many, how many weeks am i in this tour and i guess about not two and a half three weeks something like that into bad wolves tour with uh volbeat across europe this tour is two months long and uh we're getting into it and uh, listen guys i'm not gonna lie i've been dealing you know i was talking a while back about dealing with some depression that has stuck with me. It's it's been rough. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what it uh, is all stemming from, but you know it it sucks. You know, and it's something that I'm like almost I get embarrassed about. Um, you could probably tell when I'm I'm like off social media. I'm not really posting as much because I just kind of want to hide and you know eat cookies and <laughs> watch TV you know TV shows for hours and hours on on end. And it and it sucks because it feels like. Uh, when I'm not that way, I'm really getting things done and I'm motivated and I'm hyped up. And uh, yeah, and it's weird. It, it feels almost uh, like you become someone else. And it's and of course, it's all part of who you are. Um, but I don't know, maybe I've, I've hit this point where I'm a bit more closed off about it. And maybe that's something I need, I need to change, you know. Been, been meaning to speak to a therapist, but it's tough out here in Europe just with the the hours and trying to organize everything. Definitely the the tour, you know, this time of year is, is not the easiest with the getting the sleep right and the weather changes. Even though it's actually really warm right now, it's been for the past, I don't know, four or five days, it's been like in the sixties and seventies. It's kinda kinda weird. I guess the uh the golden era of climate change we have to enjoy it while while we can even though coming here in the summer i'm sure it's going to be brutal because it's also getting hotter then as well but the tour is huge i mean it's crazy how big volbeat is i mean we're doing like big boy arenas entire full floor filled every seat filled and it's like touring with a band like this it's almost closer to touring with metallica or rammstein or iron maiden where like you know, it's, it started off a little rough, not going to be honest, where we're just kind of getting our, our bearings on the stage and figuring out how to connect. But it's almost like they're there for that band. you got to figure out how to make an impact. Um, and so it's been a challenge, but but I think we're doing really, really well. And, you know, we're, we're just, we're just kind of figuring it out, but it's a lot of days off. Uh, we'll have two different uh, stints where it's like five days in one show. 
So I think, you know, that those kind of periods where you're kind of you're in Europe, you're far away and you have a lot of downtime. I think that can kind of get to you. And that's something I, I recall, you know, back when God forbid, would tour over here, it would always be around this time, around October, November. And, you know, that seasonal depression and being away and you start questioning yourself, like, well, what am I doing this for? And you miss your uh, you miss your lady and your your family and friends. And, you know, it can be tough. This uh, this lifestyle is, is not for everybody. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working through it, trying to, trying to stay physically fit. I think I'm eating a little too much. The, uh, the catering is so good. <laughs> they, so they have this catering company out. So it's the same people that make the food every day. And it's so good. It's like restaurant quality, uh, every meal desserts. And I'm like, I'd probably put on 10 pounds. I, I, I need to, it's too good. So I, you know, I have to, I have to display some discipline and I'm going to get there y'all. You know, and uh, but anyway, enough that I should probably and there was an announcement today. God forbid is doing another show. This is a big event. We're doing what's a cruise and it's Lamb of God's cruise called Headbangers Boat. Um, and it's featuring Mastodon, Hatebreed, Guar, Shadows Fall, Us, <laughs> uh, Fit for an autopsy. I could have sworn municipal waste was on here, but I don't. I don't see their name. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it. When does it go on sale? It goes on sale in the next couple of days. But uh, it's headbangersboat.com. More bands to be added, and that's going to be uh, starting on Halloween 2023 through the fourth, leaving out of Miami, going to the Bahamas, and so that's really exciting. And there's more, some more God forbid news to to come. So go over there, get those tickets. I'm sure that's going to sell out. You know how those cruises are. They, don't, they there's only about three thousand, I think, tickets on those those things. So they go pretty pretty quick. But that that's it's exciting. God damn damn, that's like damn near a year away. It's crazy. Actually, almost exactly a year away. Wow, amazing. But uh, check that out. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna get to this week's sponsor. We have a band from Oklahoma. They're called Titan. We're gonna play a track entitled "In the Blood."
There you have it. Actually, I, I made a mistake. The band's name is not Titan. It's Titan Metal. It's two words. I got confused because the MP3 just said Titan on it. So my bad. Titan Metal with their new track, uh, In the Blood. They are from uh, Oklahoma, Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, and although that song features their singer, Ricky Razor, it also features six guest vocalists. From their hometown and uh, they wanted to dedicate that song to their fallen brother and local legend rafael montes 
They have shared the stage with bands like Ginger, Nile, DRI, The Browning, and go check out their music, Titan Metal, on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your stuff. And uh, they will be releasing a self-titled EP and single, and that will be out um, in 2023. So check that out. Their Facebook is Titan Metal Band, same as Instagram, Snapchat, uh, TikTok, Titan Metal Music. Go give them a shout. Tell them Doc Coyle and the X-Man sent you. If you'd like to sponsor the show, just shoot me an email at thexmanpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that's EX. Or just get up in the DMs. All right. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to intro this week's guest. It is uh, Mr. Edsel Dope of the band Dope. And I did not know Edsel before this conversation. And... Even, you know, the band obviously has uh, a good amount of success and has been kind of a name around in the scene for a long time since at least I've been around. So I've definitely uh, known them and heard songs and stuff, but I didn't even know that super well. So this was actually like a really, really great surprise because Edsel's a really smart guy, um, has done, you know, just really inspiring, I think, his his perspective on things. And sometimes you have these shows, you have these opportunities to speak with people. And, I, and as soon as I had the opportunity, I was like, hell yeah, I want to I talk to Edsel. But this conversation made that uh, that much more apparent. And it was really, really awesome. So I think you guys are re- really going to enjoy this conversation. So check out my talk with the incredible Mr. Edsel Dope. I'm not I sure. don't think so. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird, you know, be doing it this long. You know, I've you know I've been jamming and and, and doing music. Uh, I don't know, maybe not as long as you, but but damn near, you know, in that in that same time frame. And it's amazing that we that we haven't uh, crossed paths. I'm I'm good buddies with AC. Oh, nice. You know, going going way back. And uh, anyway, you know, it's just it's just very weird because, like, like I said, I feel like I'm like the Forrest Gump of of metal, where I'm just like. I'm kind of around for for a lot of stuff, but better late than than never because you're obviously someone who uh, been doing a long time, has so many uh, accomplishments and and made a a big name for yourself, deservedly so. Well, I appreciate those kind words. I, I would tell you that I am pretty much like a ghost. So like I'm working when I'm not working, I'm playing a show when I'm not playing a show, I'm on the laptop when I'm not doing that, I'm sleeping. So like I'm not surprised we haven't missed each other. Um, but I'm glad that we have uh, reconciled that and we can finally meet. Absolutely. Well, so hmm. got to hydrate. So I'm, um, I'm from New Jersey originally. And you know, when you I was, know AC. what's that? That's why, you know, my boy AC. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, I'm pretty sure he was living in the city at the time that, that, that we met, but, um, no, I mean, just going back and kind of like, uh, reading, reading about you and, and, and the band pre- preparing for this, that you came out of New York city. Is that where, like where you're from, from? No. So, um, so long story short, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and, um, I was really young when I started playing music. Like I was playing in, you know, for lack of better words, like legit bands that had real interest from labels at like 16 years old, I was playing drums. Wow. And, um, and, and that was at the time that two bands coming out of South Florida blew up and it was Saigon kick. And then Marilyn Manson was right on the, on the cusp of, or excuse me, right on the, on the back of Saigon kick. Very different music. (laughs) Yeah, totally. 
But like, so I was down there in that whole scene and knew all those dudes, but I was like this young kid that was just like, I'm going to fucking make it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm starting early and like dropped out of high school and I was just fucking committed. Um, but what that experience taught me was I, I watched how Saigon kick got signed, for example. And I watched how like, and again, we're talking, people are going signed. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, like signed to a record label back in the day where they, you know, they came in and they, they spent the resources to make a great record and to promote you and do all the things that so many bands now do solely independently. Yeah. But, um, but I digress. So, um, so I watched how difficult it was, not even difficult, but just how lengthy the process was between a label in New York or LA thinking your band in Florida was good to then coming down and having some low level lawyer friend that tells you, Oh, I saw the band and 200 people were there. And then uh, three months later, a low level A&R guy. And then six months later, the VP. And then two years later, maybe the band got signed. And to me, I was just like, I was a little too ambitious and opportunistic to kind of like what I like to describe as grow in front of an audience. Like I didn't want to be one of those artists that went out and played a bunch of local shows and, 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 and built it that way. I, I wanted to do something more, like how I was exposed to major label bands. Like it would just, it would just be in my face and I would judge it and I would judge it based on how it made me feel, but it was put in my face in a professional manner where I could properly judge it as a young impressionable fan. So my idea was I, I was like, I'm going to go to where the labels are and that's either New York or LA. And once I have my vision of what I want to do and it's, you know, it's real clear I'm going to move to one of those places and I'm going to be a ghost. I'm not going to go out and meet everybody and introduce myself and try to become popular. I'm just going to like use all my resources to attack the marketplace with all kinds of promotion. And, and for what we did in New York, it was all these, we, we made like thousands of these orange cassette tapes that had like six songs on it. And we promoted a show for a band nobody had ever heard of for four or five months by just every time corn would come to town or zombie would come to town or whoever we would just not us but like our friends or our girlfriends or whoever would hammer the line of 500 to a thousand people with these cassette tapes and the promo for our show and um and and it worked out exactly the way that i hoped like the way that the fans received it was very different than like a local hey dude come see my band it was like here's a legitimate thing that you can get behind yeah. it move you. And fortunately for us, the timing was really good. And the energy that we were putting out resonated super hard in New York, New Jersey, like that, you know, tri-state area. And, um, you know, our first show was sold out. It was like kind of crazy. And everybody that knew me told me I was nuts. Like even the guys that I hired to play in the band at that time, um, because it was very much like that. It was like, dude, I got the shit done. I just need a dude to play fucking guitar. And it's funny because AC was the first guy I asked to play in dope because I was like, dude, I just need a dude that looks cool to stand there and take a picture and then like <laughs> learn the songs and go fucking rock the stage with me. And he's like, yeah, I got a band already. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. It's going to be a fucking line down the block. Like I got this figured out. And he's like, sure you do, buddy. Good luck. Here's a number to some weirdo. <laughs> so um so long story short ac and me ended up circling back around and working together later on and, and he's one of my best friends to this day but that's how i i established myself in new york i chose because it was just 
felt more conquerable than LA. Like I had visited there a few times and I was just like, man, this is a cool vibe and get on the subway. I can be super independent. I can just promote the fuck out of my band. I had a very NWA mindset about it. Like I was like, I want to do whatever I have to do to earn money. But instead of spending that money to like show off or buy nice things, I'm going to just put it into my business. I'm just going to put it into recording equipment and promotion. And that's what dope is going to be. And if, effectively, that's kind of what gave the band the name. It was just like, what were we doing for a living? How were we building this thing? And then once like the music was ready and the vision of the energy was ready, me and my brother were sitting there and we were just like, dude, what are we going to call this thing? And we hundred different ideas. And he looks at me and he goes, why don't we just call it dope? And I went, are you kidding? Like done. Like there was no turning back at that point. So, um, so then three months later, those little orange cassette tapes started spreading all over New York city. And that's 25 years ago. We got signed yeah. to Epic after like six shows. Well, the thing that kind of stands out to me is you kind of having this business mindset and kind of visionary uh, way of looking at things, which I think is probably the, the rarest quality to have and kind of the thing that, you know, you can go back in the history of any genre, right? Like you bring up NWA, but whether you're talking about Kiss or whether you're talking oh. about you know, uh, you know, any, any, any number of acts where someone has like this vision and, and is able, cause there's that there's this distance between having a vision or, or having ambition and then being able to kind of execute that plan. Um, were you just, were you always th that way? Or are you able, were you the kind of guy who was, you know, like a Gene Simmons, like, all right, I'm not going to party. I'm not going to touch drugs. I'm because I'm so focused on the business. Um, it's interesting. That's a really good question. Um, and I'm going to answer it two different ways. One is until I was about 21, 22 years old, I was super anti-drug and super anti-alcohol. And just like everybody that I had known in my young life that smoked weed or did drugs at a young age, all were like burnouts, like no ambition, sat around on the couch and played video games. And I like, I wanted something. So I avoided those things, which I think to this day, was a very smart thing. And I advise young people to stay away from these substances until you've reached a point where like you have established a form of repetition in your life or like uh, discipline. Like, yeah, man, because if you start smoking weed before you, your mind fully understands like how to navigate, then like, it, I don't know. I think it's really bad. But um, so, but I did, but, but by the time I had gotten to New York, um, I was smoking weed and I was, you know, I was having fun in New York. New York was fun, but I always had like, a super control freak personality. And like, there was no way that I, that I would have an addictive bone in my body. Like it just wasn't going to be me regardless. Um, so I never partied hard enough to put myself in danger or partied with the types of things that would really put you in danger. Um, but, but going back to the ambition, it's weird because I, I I didn't understand it as a business really mm -hmm. in 1997, but I understood marketing and I don't know why I understood marketing at a very young age, but the best uh, example I can give you is like when I was in elementary school, um, they did like this organized trip from, I grew up in Florida, from Florida up to Washington, DC. And like whatever kid signed up for this and got your parents to approve it and paid the whatever $300 or whatever it was, you would get on an Amtrak train with a bunch of your fucking schoolmates 
and uh and some chaperones and you would take this train all the way to washington dc and then i guess you stayed in hotel rooms i don't really remember it's a little foggy and we were there for two or three days and took pictures at all the monuments and it was actually a really cool experience but my mom takes me to costco actually sorry back that up my mom says to me here's fifty dollars or whatever it is this is you have to make this last for your entire trip to washington dc i said okay so when are you going to costco again She's well, I'm actually going today. So, okay, great. So I got in the car, went to Costco with my mom. I went and spent $50 on gummy worms and gummy bears and all the different snacks that I knew everybody was going to want. <laughs> and then I bought a bunch of baggies and I baggied them up just like someone would do drugs 20 years later. And I went on that train and after two hours on that ride, I just started walking around and going, yo, who wants gummy gummy worms? Who wants gummy bears? Who wants this? Who wants that? And dude, I turned that 50 bucks into like 500. Wow. And and I might be exaggerating. Maybe I turned that 50 bucks into 150. But but I, I would say probably significantly more when you really, those big tubs of gummy worms and you yeah. like, you put five of them in a baggie and you sell it for three bucks. Like, I don't remember. All I know is the shit worked. And I was like, okay. And then again, as I got older and I watched other bands succeed, it all to me translated at like, if you were good and you were putting out an energy that people wanted to get down with, it was all about how they were first impressed with it. Like you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Yep. And again, of course, a lot of bands start in a bar and they grow and that's a really cool experience. And I've never had that. So, I, but I'm sure it's super rewarding. But for me, I just looked at it like when I, fell in love with every band I ever fell in love with as a kid. It was because I either saw him on a big stage with a bunch of people or like I saw him on MTV or I, I heard the record and it sounded professional and no one had to caveat it with like, well, they're local. It was like, dude, check this fucking band out. This shit is fire. So that's what I wanted to do. Like, I, like whatever I was going to do, I, I always just felt the need to present it to people in a way that didn't have to use their imagination to get down with it. Yeah. So it was less business, though, I think more marketing. But then again, I, I had a nice little gummy worm business. So maybe it was business. I just well, no, I'm, I'm, you know, hear, hearing that, like I'm in many ways, I'm like jealous of people like you that have that the, the, the stuff that a lot of us have to go and do bands and make a bunch of mistakes. And maybe 10 years later, we learn, oh, this is what marketing is or, oh, this is where I was supposed to kind of frame the band or or do that, you know, kind of fake it to you make it type mentality. And that it's all about kind of framing yourself uh, in a way and just understand, like, to me, the marketing thing is one of the toughest things, especially on like the metal side, because metal is so, so much about the playing and the musicianship and, 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 you know, it's very nerdy and everyone gets involved in that and they get this kind of tunnel vision. And they kind of lose sight of the big picture stuff you know and it's like i, I just watched uh romstein last week and you know that's Man. they're in the pantheon of like the bands that get those things right the show and the imagery and this whole bigger thing outside of just the music that you actually listen to so when i hear guys like you that kind of had that figured out from day one i'm like damn if i if i had that i'd probably be this further <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I mean it, you know, it's all relative. Like I, I, I've never considered myself to be super talented artist, you know, like I, I think again, I, I, I always remember an interview I saw with Madonna where she was like, 
I'm not the best singer. I'm not the best looking. I'm not the best dancer, but like, I know how to make a room move. Yeah. I know how to like make people's energy like move. And I was really, really good at that when I was young because I was on the pulse of other young people. So like, so, and it's, and, and you're very right. And as the years went on and the major labels went away and dope had to do what I would like to call earn it. Yeah. Um, if you listen to the progression of the records, the band became a lot more of those things that you just described. It became more technical. It became more, more refined because it had to in order to earn the respect of its peers and its fans because what it started out as was nothing like that at all. This yeah. band didn't start as like, we're going to show you how fucking real we are. Like, I mean, not with our music. It was more like our attitude is real and our energy is real, but it was more like Ramones. Like it was, it was metal, punk rock, with this industrial twist of like ministry and Manson and nine inch nails and so much of this and coming from the streets of New York with a pocket full of freaking kryptonite, because we all, that was our world that we lived in. It was just a really, really awesome, dangerous, fun, sex, drugs, and rock and roll energy that with the marketing head that I had, it was almost like I didn't even have to market that. Like I just had to be that, but then put it into the system in the same way that people would consume other things that are creditable and legit. So I think once those cassette tapes hit the people's hands and it was like, dude, free dope, like you're already one. <laughs> well, now, now if you put it in your cassette player and it moves you, well, now I have a fan. Yeah. So, well, I would, I would say, I think the thing you're underselling is that th that quality you said that you had and Madonna has, of I can move the room. I think that's rarer than someone who's just shreds on guitar or someone who's just a, sure. a very technically gifted singer, I think, because that stuff is, is there's a pretty, I don't want to say it's an easy path, but it's, it's a predictable path of going, if I put X amount of time and I, you know, I study with these people or take these classes, I can get my technical skill up to a certain level. But I think what you're talking about is essentially a type of charisma, right? That some people either have it or they don't. Well, right. there's, a, there's a great saying. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, this no. is so profound. And the guy who said it to me was named was Jordan Schur. Jordan Schur was the owner president of a label called Flip Records, who signed Limp Bizkit and Stained mm -hmm. and Cold and also Dope. So they were the only four bands that, that anyone ever heard of off of Flip Records. And then Jordan became the president of Geffen. But long story short, Jordan was this, you know, all, everybody knew Jordan because Limp Bizkit was blowing up. And Jordan found dope because we were blowing up in New York City and he wanted to sign the band. And we were talking about how uh, kind of a lot of the things that you and I are talking about and like how who I am and how I come at the world. And he goes, Edsel, you know what you got? And it's like, what's that? He's like, my old debt, my old man used to tell me this this saying, and I'm going to pass it to you. And it's you can't lead a parade if you think you look funny wearing a hat. That was <laughs> And and now think to what that really means. Look at what oh, a I know exactly what it means. Dude, the parade leader looks ridiculous. Like that outfit and the baton and his whole thing. But dude, look into his eyes. That motherfucker means it. Yeah. And he walks out on that field and does his thing. Everybody goes, God damn, that shit, that shit's okay. I, I you know, so um so Hannibal yeah. Burris has a joke about that, about the guy who's trying to pull off the, the fedora. Like it's you have to believe, right? Right. <laughs> right. So, so I think that, yes, it's charisma, but it's also like 
fearlessness, man. Like, like if there's anything that I will say, I'm so grateful for, and I'm not sure exactly how I got it, except for that I'm the youngest of four boys. Yeah. And dude, like that means that everything that I ever did in life, I did after three other motherfuckers did it, which means I was late as fuck to the party. So I could be 10 years old and you got two brothers that are 13 and one who's 16. Well, the 16 year olds going to the 13 year olds. How come you guys haven't gotten laid yet? And the 13 year olds are going laid. What are you talking about? We're just trying to like make out with girls and figure it out. And then they're coming to the 10 year old going, how come you haven't made out with girls? And you're like, huh? what I'm playing, playing with Legos, you know? So everything I ever did, was like the little runt, you know, like scratching and clawing and, and fighting for everything is when you got three dogs in front of you. Like, so I think for whatever reason that translated to like a fearlessness in me on all levels. Yeah. And it was like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Like, I'm just going to put it out there and believe in it. But also, I also am a very, um, like I'm a, I'm a very fidgety kind of impatient person, but I'm incredibly patient for the long game. Yeah. And and I don't know where that came from either, but like that's a very important part of success is like being able to like put a plan together and build it without sharing it with anyone. It's like, yeah. you know, and, and again, that's what I did as a local band. I was like, I was like a major label band doesn't share their demos with you. They share the finished, completed, professional sounding album. So why should I act any differently? Yeah. So I don't know. It just it all just made sense to me. Um and, and again, I think the fearlessness and a little bit of charisma, whatever you want to call it, that I had a lot more of when I was 24 years old, um, you know, something to say about believing it, man. Like, cause I can look back at the energy that I was putting off back then and know that like the punk rock, the, like the Ramones ish thing about it. Like, of course that's still in my soul, but like, I hear that some of the things that came out of my mouth when I was 25 years old, I'm just like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, you're such an, and you're a dick. Like you're so full of yourself. Like, but again, it, in a lot of ways, it was like this character and I just, this bravado and push your chest out and be this young kid and just go up on stage and fucking kill it. And now I'm, you know, way older. And I'm, and I realized like for me to win, nobody has to lose. Like, yeah. it's not really a competition. Like I think a lot of us thought when we were young, um, it's just crazy. Life's just crazy. Getting old's fucking weird, man. <laughs> but we're all doing it. Absolutely. It's funny, kind of referring to one thing you said about not showing people what you're doing is that apparently, uh, let's say you have like an idea or something you want to work on, that if you tell people about it, and then they give you like some type of validation or feedback, you get the same feeling as if you had accomplished it. And, and so they say like you, sh and because of that, you end up not doing the thing because mm. you got like that feeling. So they say it's better not to talk about the stuff you're you're going to do just keep it keep it under wraps and then and, and then do it uh one thing i want yeah, to I also feel like is far more valuable when it hits someone in the face like that it's sure. like sure know. um i wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the new metal scene because i'm i'm absolutely fascinated with that era you know the late the kind of mid late 90s going into early 2000s and how you know uh the scene evolves right certain things are really popular at, you know, by the time your guys first record came out, new metal was the biggest thing in the world, right? You're, you're talking about, you know, Slipknot's first records comes around in that time, Linkin Park's first record. I mean, things are just, things are just going off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fear factory was playing MTV's beach party. Yeah, dude. There's <laughs> no, really like, like that's, so let me set that stage. Like to put, a, <laughs> to put a cherry on top of everything you just said. 
the music that we were part of, the scene that we were part of was as commercial as it really gets for that 15 minutes. Sure. Like, again, a 22-year-old college student, male or female, but because it's easier to put into like the kind of terms of what I'm trying to visualize here, let's go with a girl, a 22-year-old college girl, popular, fun, that girl that now would like put on her little fairy outfit and go to an EDM concert and drive all those dudes crazy because she's half naked running around dancing sleazy to the fucking songs. That was 1999, but it was metal like Pantera would play and the whole crowd was 18 to 25 male, female tops off energy, testosterone. It was crazy. It was an EDM concert to people today's understanding of like the energy and the youth um those bands were on the cover of rolling stone like that's in, that's inconceivable i'm not talking about like it was metallica it's like no dude this was like marilyn manson and zombie and slipknot and all the lakin parks and all the bands you you named corn biscuit system dude, and, and fear factory literally you're watching mtv and it's like carson daly here so we take you back to the beach and here it is fear factory with their hit song edge crusher and Burton and Dino are up there in black T-shirts. And it's like kids on a beach, college kids. Like that's what it was part of. So I just want to overly frame that because it it didn't take long for it to completely shift again. And yeah. for it, but again, which was but it gave so much momentum and so much wind in the sails of so many bands in that movement. Corn, for example, who to this day disturbed. You know, Slipknot, to this day, those bands, when back then, when everybody was going, who are the bands going to be of the future? Well, we have now realized that there is a handful of them and they are fucking juggernauts and they played a huge crowds 20 years later. And that's amazing. Um, but that movement, I, I, I don't know if people that didn't live through it realize how commercialized and absolutely massive it was for the short time that it was massive. Well, it, it was essentially the last time metal and hard rock you know like aggressive kind of ballsy hard rock was at the top of pop culture you know you know basically those first couple of years into the into the 2000s and i've, I've mentioned this a lot on the podcast I'm very, I'm very convinced woodstock 99 had something to do with uh the downfall of it just the the, the imagery like the image or like you know right became, you know pat you know it was like we need to get these uh these ruffians out of here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the World Trade Center was a big part of it too. Sure, sure. Yeah, that was that was that was a big shift as as yeah. well. And absolutely. I mean, I, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but like I can tell you without sounding like a guy that's complaining, um, a lot to do with because of my punk rock attitude and my lack of really understanding business, understanding marketing, but not business. Um, the World Trade Center was inevitably what ended the relationship between Dope and Epic Records. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about that's that was two two and a half years after we got signed. Yeah. So a lot of you know you could think that Dope had like a really long major label run where we had all those opportunities and those big moments, and you'd be right because when we had them, we really had them. But it was very short lived for us. Like our first album was was very successful we did massive touring behind it um had so much momentum we made our second record we came out with the label fully behind it because it was like this band sold you know hundreds of thousands of records like they're going to be one of those that's that was the goal um and uh 
we were, and as every band did back then, you picked a single that you went to radio with, and then you picked like your college metal radio track. And for us, it was a song called Die Motherfucker Die. And the artwork of the Life record was was very much a continuation of our first album where I don't want to call it political, but it was very just, and I don't, and, and anti-America is the wrong word too, because we were as American as it got. It was just anti-establishment. Sure. That was a better way to put it. So if you looked at the artwork, it was, you know, there were guns and there was, you know, zombified Uncle Sam and the, and the White House exploding. Like there was all this shit and the World Trade Center fell. And the label's like, dude, your song is called Die Motherfucker Die. You're a New York City band. The World Trade Center just fell. And I'm looking at the artwork of your album that's about to come out. And it's got like Capitol buildings blowing up. And like, dude, like you, they're, we're Epic Records. And like, we're not about that life. And had, had the older self been able to go back and talk to that younger self, I would have been like, bro, there's a way for you to express everything that you're trying to express and also respect the fact that the company that you're in business with that's marketing and promoting you to the masses, like needs a little bit of fucking flexibility here. I wasn't hearing it. I was just like, this is my record and fucking die motherfucker die. And like, what are you talking about? And, you know, again, uh, chips fell where they may, but three months later we weren't on Epic records anymore. And back in those times, like you, you're a successful band that gets dropped by a major label, but you're not like a platinum band. Yeah. You're really damaged goods. Like everyone looks at you and goes, well, they're not the next big thing. So why would we sign them? And it's like, so all of a sudden you're faced with like, you can sign an indie deal. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like we're, we just sold fucking hundreds of thousands of records on Epic and like, we're hot. Yeah. Without that big machine around you. I don't think you realize how not hot you are. And it was like, okay. And then went out there in a van and went, holy fucking shit, nobody showed up tonight. Like, why? Well, because, dude, you have no real agent anymore and no marketing behind you on a national level. No, like, your label actually did, they actually worked back then. There was yeah. actually a machine. Um, So... Uh, I don't know how I got here, but um... no, no, this is this is all good stuff because this is yeah. like you know what you know why you're a great interview because you start talking about the stuff I was gonna ask you anyway. <laughs> all right, great. Well, you know, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to hijack it on you. No, this is no, listen. They get to hear from me all the time. All right, we're here for you. No, no, because I, I, because right. I, that that's really the crux of, of what this show is about. Is like those transitionary periods, right? And that's the main kind of the main reason why I brought up. The new metal thing was because, you know, what I'm impressed about what you've done is the longevity, right? Is because so many, you're not the only band that went through that. I could probably bring up 20 bands who had the major bring label. Up 40. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ford with them. Who had the major label ride and not only was it that uh, at some point within that those those early years in the 2000s that new metal started to become not as cool or whatever, but also record sales just started dropping in general because of downloading, right? So it was just everyone was experiencing this shift in the music industry along with, hey, we're not getting the support and and, and all that stuff. So you can kind of go through that band by band and say, okay, how does to me it's like like almost like you said you had to earn it right but that's when you kind of learn what you're made of right you learn oh yeah how how good are we really as a band who oh. you know 
that that's you're 100 right but i'm i'm gonna bring it into my world and like sure. so, so what i how it happened for me is we got dropped by epic again very early into our career thought we had all this momentum which i think we did have had we remained on a major label and gotten those handful of tours that we needed to remind people of the record and i think i think we were on the right track but once that was removed and we made some really dumb mistakes because we were completely independent at, at that time like so what? Really, well like we we just we just decided to go to book our own tour and go out on the road because we had a major major agent so yeah. but when the label left the agent left like everybody just kind of disbanded that's how it works and I didn't have the business smarts to go like, okay, there's levels to this game. So like, there's probably a B or C level agent that would pick me up and like, understand that I do have some momentum, maybe get me a support tour. Like, I don't know, but I was just like, well, we'll just go book a tour. And I just knew some guy who was like, oh, I know this, this, this agent guy. And he was like a local agent guy in Chicago where I had just moved to. And again, just kind of ignorant and and went out and, and played some shows that were really rough, like not nobody there freaking Tuesday night in some town I'd never heard of. It's like a bar. And I'm like, I'm not used to this. Like what, what the fuck is happening? So long story short, what we did was we, we decided to like kind of start our own label for lack of better words. It was like a joint venture thing. Um, and we kind of took the same approach that we would have taken on another major label release. Like we thought the label was going to do what Epic did. Um, so we made what I think was a really good record. It was called group therapy. Um, I made a video for every single song on the record, which nobody had really done up to that point. Like, honestly, not even Mariah Carey had done it. That, this is 2004. I made a video for every single song. So you could put the video in your computer is you know that's how people are maybe a D, i don't even think dvds were a thing yet i mean um, no, dvds were were a thing but did you sell did it come along with the album that's what it was that's why it wasn't a dvd i didn't want to have to make people pay more so it was like the, the cd itself was a, also a cd rom yeah, so yeah. you could put it in your computer and you could play the album from top to bottom and watch it and i was yeah. like that's nobody's done that before so we put that record out we made a couple really good videos um, like high budget looking videos and then released it without a tour, you know, like we went out and headlined or whatever, but we had, but, but none of the factors that allowed us to like create any momentum to have like a big first week or to have any, to make enough noise for anybody to look and go, Oh, dope is back. Like it really didn't happen. Um, but I learned immensely through that, that I had to return to my mindset that I had when I moved to New York city, it was like, okay, I'm actually indie now. Like, yeah. even though there might be a label partner, it's an indie label. So, like, this is a different game. So, what I did at that point was I decided that I was going to make the record myself, which is what I had been doing anyway. Um, I just, I, I, I owned a Pro Tools rig. I was one of the first dudes in my circle that, like, got into Pro Tools really early. Like, I produced my first record um, back in 90, I did all the demos in 97, did the record in 98. Um but uh, but so I I committed that, OK, I'm going to make this next record and I'm going to uh, and I'm going to work on the videos and the artwork. And then I'm just going to go to a label that I look at at the time that I'm ready and go like this is an indie label that's solid. They have a tracker. And actually, I chose Artemis Records. I don't know if you remember Artemis. Yeah, then they put out Kitty. Records. Correct. Correct. So I went to Artemis, who I, I knew Danny Goldberg and Daniel Glass from from through my manager from years before. And so I, I went and saw them and I was like, hey, dudes, this is this is what I'd like to do. I would like to bring you a finished record. 
And I just want you to give me a lump sum of money for it. Like, and I'll, you don't have to worry about how much went to making the record or how much went to making the videos or whatever. You just, we negotiate a lump sum. You give it to me. I'll be the end, the, the creative entity and I'll deliver you the content and you guys put it out, but I'll give you all the marketing tools you need. We'll just, you know, and, and of course we had to discuss like what their marketing budgets would be and all that kind of stuff. But it allowed me to feel like I had total control and I also had the ability to bring them the record when it was ready. It wasn't anybody calling me going, hey, you're on the release schedule. When's that coming? Like I did, like we talked about earlier, I didn't even go knock on Artemis's door until I had the record ready. Yeah. So what I did was um, we toured and toured and toured and toured. And then by chance, and I'm, I'm very grateful for this, actually, by chance, we uh, the, the dudes in the band Mushroomhead came out and saw Dope play on one of their days off on tour. And, and they were big fans of the band because they were they came out a little later than we did. But Mushroomhead was really hot at that point. They had just just released that Sun Doesn't Rise song and they um, and then they did the seal cover. And um, so if you go back to 2005, that time frame, 2006, like Mushroomhead was playing like selling out House of Blues. like that was a big fucking tours. So Mushroomhead comes and sees us and they're like dude, you guys are a great band. Like we, we want to take you guys on tour. And we were like, oh, okay, fine. Like somebody's fucking putting us in front of bigger crowds. So before that you were just mainly doing headline. That's all we did for, for two years, three years. All we did was headline. It was very hard to regrow something that had been stamped out so hard. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was very aware that those people, there were still a lot of people out there that knew who we were and were favorable about who we were. They just didn't know how to find us. So that much, we toured a bunch with Mushroom Head over the, like the next two years because we priced ourselves really cheap and we were just like down for it and we and we were killing it in merch. And it, it turned out to be like a really great for both bands. Is that how you were surviving? Was through merch and stuff? And like how like how are you? Is if you if you if you're like quote unquote like market value is not where you wanted to be, were you able to make the budgets work? Were you just in a van? Were you keeping? Yeah, we were definitely we, we were in a van for the beginning until yeah. until we grew out of it. But I also like the all the band had to do was sustain the band because I made other money other places to sustain myself, and we can talk about that after I wrap this up. But like I for for years I was also one of the dudes that was really early to the party of like just creating crappy background music for ESPN Sports Center. Like I just made a lot of what I called faceless music that was just like, okay, we need 16 cuts that are 30 seconds long. And we want some of them to sound like Lincoln park, some of them to sound like Metallica, someone to sound, but their, their level of expectation for like the quality was very baseline. Yeah. So you were able to crank out a lot of content. I did a lot of it on the tour bus while on the road. Like I was always making music and selling it for lack of better words. Um, but didn't put my brand on it. Didn't put my face on it. It's just like, here's some cool instrumental shit and started. I mean, and it didn't matter what genre it was like. We need fucking shit that sounds like hip hop. Okay, cool. I'm in the back of the lounge fucking programming hip hop beats and doing little scats on top of them. And like, yeah, like whatever. I don't give a fuck. Um, so that was a very lucrative business for me until like mobile recording and home recording became so common that music supervisors, like 17 year old kids were making beats on Fruity Loops and going, here you go, dad. And they were going, well, what do we need these guys for anymore? Yeah. So that business really dried up. But um, but back to the band, um, Mushroom Head was super, super, super um, important for us in that time. 
But what it also did for me was was right off those couple mushroom head tours that we did and sort of reconnecting with that fan base and doing what I had always done, making sure that everybody that we played to at those mushroom head shows left with like a postcard that had like our website on it or, or had an announcement for another show date that was coming. Like I made sure that I didn't ever let an opportunity where I was in front of a bigger room that I could put myself in to make sure that all those people knew how to, how to re-engage with us, which is so hard back then. Cause there's no fucking Instagram. Yeah. Like God, if only I had that shit back then, like we would have never had those dark days. Like I would have been able to come off an of Epic record with a massive Instagram following going like, I don't need you. I got this, I got direct access. Like that shit is gold that a lot of artists today, I don't know if they really realize it, but, um, but so, uh, so then what I did was I started making that record that I ultimately took to Danny Goldberg at Artemis. And for two years, we toured under the moniker of the American apathy tour. Like everything I did, I called it the American apathy tour and promoted American apathy, but nobody oh. knew I Nobody was promoted, but no one knew that yet. Gotcha. Because I hadn't announced the new album. I just started putting all of our branding became like the, the, what the cover of American Apathy was like this old tattered red, white, and blue American flag, which was a, a sort of a, a re uh, a re evolution of the first album that was the Black American flag. But it just brought everything that people loved about the band back to the branding. Not that it ever left, but it just reestablished it. Um, and we marketed the term American apathy for like two years. And then I took the record to Artemis and I was like, okay, record's done. We've been promoting this thing and let's pick a release date. But it wasn't like three months from now. It was again, like six or eight months down the line. And we worked our fucking asses off. There was like three years in between those records, but all because that time was being used to like connect dots. And um, that was our proudest that was the proudest time for me because at this point, if you're to look up stats, like that American apathy record outsold the life epic record, which had die motherfucker die on it by like threefold. Wow. That, that record ended up selling. Um, it's almost at like 300,000 copies. It's kind of crazy. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, and the record before it that we did on like that indie label right after being dropped and didn't understand like that record, like stiffed, like, barely anybody ever fucking listened to that record and some cool shit on that record some, you know but but um but point being that our fourth album significantly outsold our second major label out and um that's when the industry sort of gave us a second chance that's when like WJJO in Madison Wisconsin was like you guys should come play our band camp like you know Madison likes you and before you know it, dope is, you know, we're not just playing Bandcamp, but we're fucking owning Bandcamp. And like we ultimately went on to have like the most requested song on WJJO for some. They gave me some award for some incredibly significant period of time, um, which I believe was off of that record. It was a song called Bitch. Maybe, yeah. Oh, it was off the record before, but I had re-released it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but but the industry started to pre to present opportunities to us again, and we were and by that point, I actually went and got like a real agent again, not at the level of the original agent that I had, but I was able to obtain like a real agency. Were you were, this whole time? Are you like completely self managed? Yeah. Well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I still had I still had the for lack of better words, like the dude who originally was my manager 
really cool relationship actually. So back when I was a, when I was a kid on the streets doing my thing in New York City, I knew this artist dude, super famous pop artist named James Rizzi. And he unfortunately he died not too long ago. He was a big, you know, drug guy, but like when I say famous, I mean he was like the official artist of the Olympics. Like okay. this dude's time. But like a pop artist. Yeah. Um and and through some other people that I knew, uh Rizzi came out to like the early dope shows. He was at the first dope show ever where we fucking sold the place out. Well, he happened to be really good buddies with this guy named Chip, who was a manager who managed the band Sugar Ray. And he also brought uh, the band Delight over. Uh, he was like, the, he broke them. That groove is in the heart band. And um, and just a very well-respected dude in New York City. A big, in, in addition to uh, having Sugar Ray, like he did Clinton's inauguration, like his production company. Wow. Was super successful, but Sugar Ray was his band he was known for. So Chip comes out and sees my band the next time I play because of James Rizzi. And Chip, being an opportunist and, you know, a good manager, like, sees me, sees my band, sees a line down the block and goes, like, I have to fucking get my hooks in this band quick because this shit's going to go with or without me. Um, and I loved them. Like, Chip was a New York guy full of cool cliches and quotes and just, like, a lot of, you know, things that I feel like I'm going to become for people as I get older, you know. Um, and... Uh, so when we left the major label, Chip helped to put together that indie deal to do the group therapy record. And he was like on that label team. And technically you would call him the manager, but there was, um, I got to, I got to move my laptop because my, uh, power's going to go out. That's all good. Um, but there was so there, there really wasn't like, we weren't do, we weren't active like we were in the early days of the band. So there wasn't a tremendous amount for him to manage. So did I have a manager? Yeah. And for that time I did. But once that group therapy record came out and stiffed, like that was it. Like we were, again, I could call him for advice and, 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 and he probably had something to do with like that Danny Goldberg meeting to some degree. Like I think through that indie deal, that's how I met Danny. But like, but he wasn't like representing me and making decisions with me at that point. It was more like, you're a smart guy. You got to figure it out. That's so all. He wasn't commissioning shows you know, yeah. and those kinds of things. So, uh, so I still had some mentorship, but yeah, I was, I would say I was self-managing. And from there, essentially, you know, have self-managed myself through the rest of my career. There was a little time there where I tried to, again, I was like, ah, maybe I'll work with this guy for and. and and I realized we both realized three months into it that it was like, hey, we'll be friends, dude. But like, you you don't in, unless somebody's going to deliver me the moon. It's like, why am I paying you? Like, I need I need shit that's a that I am not able to obtain on my own. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason why I ask is because you know the way you talk, you basically talk like like a manager, not not like a manager of someone else's band, but like in terms of you think in those terms of bigger plans looking long term you know you're like you're really setting things up and and it's always fascinating to me when a band has you know a bit of a downturn like you're saying with the the group therapy record because it takes faith right kind of that you need you need faith in yourself when all of a sudden the phone stop ringing or maybe you're doing shows that aren't aren't so hot and when you have days where it feels like oh man we're not what we once were we don't have the label support to see the bigger picture and go no no no, no. if we do 
these things correctly and get a few opportunities, eventually it'll get to where we need it to go. I mean, what was, you know, because this is a, this is a very different scenario than like you said, before you got signed, right? Like now you're actually existing in the reality of a band that is established, has had a shot, and is now dealing with the downturn, which is way more well, common than I think people and, really realize. And there's no more real financial carrot. There's still a carrot, but there's no more financial carrot. Like back in 1997, 98, part of the 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 dream of making it was getting signed to Epic Records because you knew that in addition to the marketing and all the things they were going to do, we're also going to write you a check. Yeah, an advance. Yeah, you're gonna and and again, we were we we were smart. And we we made people believe that we were going to be very successful because we had all the makings of that. So like we had very respectable publishing deals early on, like people believed in us. So they they did what you do to things you believe in in 1997 and you advance on it. Um, but now by this time, it's 2005, 2006, 2007, like record advances are a fucking joke. But again, what I was able to do that that most bands couldn't is I was able to broker those all in deals. So like. I could go to a label and go, give me X amount of money. And for that, I'm going to deliver you a self-produced record and two self-made music videos and a bunch of cool artwork that like me and my, my little circle of dudes that are very affordable to me are going to put together. And I'm going to drop that on your desk and you're going to write me a check. You're not going to write the studio a check and the producer a check and the music video director a check and the location for the video. And like, I just used all my resources and friends and relationships and hard work and, and ability to learn to be able to make that like a very, a very functional operation financially. And then with my side businesses of making custom music and all the things that I did that allowed my life to be one step higher, you know, as far as like how I could live this, the level of, of enjoyment of my life. But, um, but the band was a sustainable business and, 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 but again, the carrot was just that it could become a more sustainable business. It wasn't that we can get it to this point where somebody's going to come in and write us a big check again. Like yeah. I had realized at that point that like, this is a small business that I have to run like a small business. And I like minded it to like a pizza shop. I was like, all right, I've, I've accepted the fact we're never going to be Domino's or, 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 or pizza hut. Like that's slipknot and disturbed. Yeah. But like I can be like Johnny Rano's pizzeria. That's like got 13 locations in one city and they're fucking awesome. And everybody loves their special sauce. And like, that's a really good small business model too. If you just focus on like the people that love you and give them great service and, and you in, put your love and heart into your recipes and serve them up. That's that's sustainable. So there were times, of course, when like I looked at other opportunities and, and started other projects on the down low or even considered like, well, what if I started a new band and changed the name? But like whether people knew who I was or not, I knew that there was value in the branding of what dope was. It was always reactive. And then I knew that there was also tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people around the world that had heard of us or engaged with us to some degree because we'd been on this tour or this soundtrack or whatever that I was like, from a small business mentality, if I'm not trying to chase a carrot and be the next big thing, I would be foolish to walk away from all of that. As long as I can keep it cool, as long as I can continue to deliver something that I'm proud of and I know there's an audience for it, let's fucking ride this. 
And, and the carrot to me was just believing that we could be a headline band on a tour bus, making enough money for everybody in the band to be happy with their salaries yeah. and for the tour to be over and me to go fucking a right. That was worth, that was worth my time. And now I'm inspired enough to go back and put it all together and do it again. Yeah. But if, but that needed to be, and, and I believe that that was possible and it was, and, and, and then, and then for me, if I'm taking you through the full fucking arc of it all, it went from American apathy to building on that momentum, selling a fuckload of records, making a very similar deal to what I did with our that record did, did well for you. American apathy. Yeah. That's the big, that's the one that outsold life. Okay. Okay. Life. okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, was, that was our fourth record. That was yeah, the one. I'm sorry. I, got, I got confused. Oh, well, good. My brother. Um, so then our next record, I did a similar deal, but I did it with E1 this time Yeah, where I took, you know, it's, it's my production company. Ultimately I'm an independent label without putting, a are, label you, are you, are you getting them. to keep your masters? Yes. Cause I'm doing licensing deals. Yeah. Okay. So I went to, 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 uh, to E1, for instance, I did a 10 year licensing deal for the album. No, Re no regrets. It was called, um, which I think to this point is, is like our best album. Like it's, it's the one where I feel like, we were really inspired. It, we had time. We had reproved with American Apathy, kind of like the industrial punk rock sleaze of the band that really connected. And then no, no respect, or excuse me, no regrets. We were like, let's make something a little bit more epic with live, well, I, well, noticed, live drums. And yeah, I, I noticed listening to, I mean, no regrets and blood money. Part one is all of a sudden it seemed it, it felt like, and if you, you look at it, you guys are making a record basically every couple of years. And then now there's kind of these longer gaps between records. And I'm sure you're absorbing, you know, just the changing musical sure. landscape. Right. So, so by this time, you know, bands like five finger death punch are out and kind of in some ways like bringing back some of the, almost the new metal vibe, but it's a lot more metal. And I hear that in, in your guys stuff where it's almost like, here's a, some metal stuff. Here's some metal sure. core, here's some sure. guitar solos. And so the band is kind of evolving with the times. And, and, and I think that's, that's like, you know, was that something that was uh, intentional or just. I, I, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, I think it was, it's always been about width for me. Like if you, our first album was like a saw blade and it was deliberate meant to be, there's no variance. It's just industrial metal, punk rock, punch you in the face from beginning to end. The second album life that had the die motherfucker die song, um, that album was very wide. Like there was super melodic and like almost like shit that like, you know, more like stained for yeah. a lack of better words, which truthfully is not like, not my best wheelhouse. Like that's yeah. me like experimenting into an area where it's like, okay, you did, you didn't do a terrible job. You didn't sink the ship on that one, but that's probably not where your tone works best, but I still went there. I still gave it a shot. Um, and uh, and then the group therapy record, we even went farther. We had even heavier song than Die Motherfucker Die on that record. But then we had two or three songs on it that literally were like acoustic songs. And, and people were like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Like, this is <laughs> crazy. Um, and some of it, but some of it was received amazingly. It just depends on the fan. And like, but what I, what I kind of did was I kind of decided that like, if a song's got 12 songs on it, like three to four to five of those songs are going to have enough of that saw blade in it from that first record to where you're going to get your spirit 
And then I'm going to experiment for the rest of the record because otherwise I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. I just Absolutely. need that. So the no respect or no regrets record, sorry. Um, that one, I felt like we had time. It was very wide, which was, again, the intention. Um, but we had a little more time to like, again, I had built out my own studio at that point. It wasn't just a room. I had like a live drum room at that point. Like I felt like that record, part of the reason that I, I like it so much is that it has like room noise to it. Like it's just a more authentic, like just a more, uh, what's the, the word uh like people organic like, yeah that's the word thank you more organic record even though it's industrial and a lot of it's chopped up but it's it just had a little more humanity to it mm -hmm. so i was really happy with that record and and um and that record did very well for us but that was kind of the um that was kind of where i i was able to look in the mirror and say you did it because by that time we were like blood money or excuse me uh no re no regrets came out we had a big song with zach wild guesting on it we were on tour with seven dust and black label society and we were killing and it was like we felt like we were back and and all that hard work and um and then i kind of wanted a break <laughs> i was like all right i did it like now i'm fucking tired i that's now it's 2010 so I had been, really been nonstop for 10 years at that point. Plus, if you count the years leading up to it, when I was a kid, just fucking going for it. So um, so I decided at that point that I um, I was working, on, as I had said, on all that faceless music. And that led me to an opportunity where uh, there was a global marketing agency in the Midwest whose CEO was building a music publishing company. And the music co publishing company was based around making music for brands and sports. And um, and I started doing tracks for him or I had been doing tracks for him through the years. <clears throat> and he'd come out to the shows and we just became really good buddies. And this dude is like super visionary marketing agency guy. He was he was like back in the 70s. He was the first dude to like sit in a bar and see a band on stage and then look behind the bar and see the Miller sign and go, we should put the Miller sign behind the band. And he created the Miller beer program with Miller up in, up in Wisconsin. So he became a fucking millionaire a hundred times over and has this huge marketing company. So he was doing this publishing company and me and him just became dudes. And, um, and at that point I had, as I said, I had really accomplished what I wanted with the no regrets record and with the, where the band was at touring. And, um, and at that point I was, I was going through realizing that I still suffered from a lot of Peter Pan syndrome. Um, and this was happening in my personal life. Yeah. And I was, and I came to realize with a lot of self-realization and agony, um, that the that the attitude and the character of Edsel Doe, along with like the very super hard disposition that I had developed over 10 years of being in what I consider to be one of the most challenging soulless industries that exists. Um, I was not like the best version of myself on a personal level. Okay. Um, you had to kind of, basically take time to work on yourself and kind of deal with that, those issues. 
Yeah, but really what that meant for me on a personal level, for the people in my life and the relationships that I wanted to work on was like, I needed to stop touring. It was yeah. like, all right, because when you're out there touring, you're putting off a certain vibrato on stage. Like you're, you're playing this Edsel dope character that's got a beer in one hand and a mic in the other. And like, everybody's there to see him and he's fucking, he's the, the, the circus jester. And then the, the show's over and you're on the bus and there's the parties, but Edsel's working, but it's still like, no, like I was, it was my world and everyone was living in it Yeah, for 10 years. And again, that didn't mean we didn't have great times. Of course we did, but it meant that like, I took that into my personal life that like, look, if you don't like it, leave. And yeah. that, that doesn't go far in healthy relationships. Like if you think that you like, again, you're just self-absorbed, self-involved, self-important, like all those things that I have realized, especially now having a wife and kids that like <laughs> self-importance fucking that's the, that's not me anymore. It's them, you know? Um, but, uh, but back then I was Peter Pan, which, you know, this business, absolutely uh encourages you know it encourages young men to go to never never land and and not grow up well i i, I always say the um there's this double-edged sword right and i think it's it's not just i think it can be a man or a woman or any anyone who's a performer is that like dysfunction reads really well as a kind of show you know like like you know, like in, in the stereotypical examples, like in, in Axl Rose, right? Like that type of figure who's going to go up there and be amazing and have this great presence, but also have tantrums and meltdowns. Sure. And you're, and you're kind of paying for both, right? Sure. You, we, we like these, these people that are polarizing. Yeah. Like, or an instability to it makes sure. it exciting. But that thing, which unpredictable, which, yeah, which Dangerous. a lot of, well, a lot of the, the best front people are also some of the most unstable people right those things kind of go hand in hand and when there's sure. a lot of money to be made what happens there's a bunch of yes men around who let them do whatever they want drugs and exactly craziness. you know but and 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 on the inverse really kind of uh people who have like their shit together and are very like have their ego in check that doesn't read quite as well on stage right because that oh. person knows they're not That's boring <laughs> yeah they're not they're, they're, you know, if you don't think you're the shit, you're like, oh, I'm just a regular Joe. It's like, well, I didn't pay for a regular Joe. I paid for a rock god. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because even like the grunge scene had that. Like Eddie Vedder was so unpredictable and like off his fucking rocker, and so was Kurt Cobain. And like, but yeah, you're 100 right. But but for me, like, I just I, I the the term I like to use is I reached a point in my life where I was having problems with people in my life that were important to me. Yeah, and and. And the only way I learned or I learned, you know, was by, by loss, you know, like you learn because you fuck shit up and you go, why did that happen? And what, what, you know, was it my fault? And then you look in the mirror and you go like, yeah, dude, you, like, this is not like what it, the, I remember the moment I was looking in the mirror and like, I was like, bro, do you think your mother would be proud of the way that you like roll in your personal life? Like the way that you talk to the people around you and the way that you like prioritize, you know, other people's feelings. And like, do you think your mom would be like, fucking, hey, that's the boy I raised. Yeah. I was like, fuck no, she wouldn't. She's proud of the businessman. She's proud of everything I've accomplished and achieved. But like, you're not, you wouldn't make a good husband right now. You wouldn't make a good, good father unless you completely reinvented how you act. And 
So that was like the first real step of me going like, okay, I, I, I see that this is not who I am. This is who I became based on all of the environments that I've been surrounded in and, and, and you feed that plant and it grows towards that. And that's what I did. So by no means was I a victim. I made all my own decisions. I just made a lot of stupid ones, at least for that part of my life. Um, so for me to work on that and not trigger things all the time by being on the road and not have like the instability of all that, um, I took a job as director of music development and entertainment at that global marketing agency and got to work on tons of really super cool programs, very soulless programs that I had no personal attachment to. Like I did all the music for the NFL and major league baseball and Nissan and Lowe's and Indian motorcycle and worked on programs with American horror story, like did a lot of super rad shit, but like was part of a team on the phone and on a laptop and like coming up with ideas and ideating and like marketing, but I had, I was not playing a guitar. I was fucking just being normal. It was awesome for me. And I did that for like, three years and then came to realize that like the things in my life that I was changing for, they were too far gone. So it was like, I just have to let all that shit go and do it what for do me. Mean? Just mean like relationships that had been torched already, but you were like, but I'm growing in the right direction, but it's kind of too late because the damage has already been done. Yeah, so with that specific relationship. Correct. Um. So, so for me, it was like, all right, I just need to like, I need to be me now like in this new headspace, not trying to be me for other people or in the vision of what other people want me to be. I just need to be the best version of me now with these new lessons and the self-realization and three or three years away from touring and all the work I've done on me. And I realized that like, if I wanted to really succeed at that marketing agency, which I'm all about, I'm all about like ambition and, and forward progress. I realized that if I wanted to succeed at that company, like I was going to have to become one of them. Like I was going to have to like become a marketing dude and live it and love it and do it fucking 50 hours a week and, and do the corporate dance that I had not really done because I, I never was part of it. I was like, yeah, I'm just visiting and I'm in this band and like whatever. And I was like, man, if I really want to win here, I got to become that. And that felt like buying a fucking tombstone to me. I was just like, bro, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. Yeah. So I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Dude. So, so I wrapped it all in the matter of like a couple of months. I was just like, Oh, none of this is working and let's all part as good of terms as we can, as far as like personal stuff. And the business was easy. It was just like, bro, I love you. But like, you know, let's just be friends. I'm going to go. And, um, and then I moved to LA and that was, uh, like, I'm a big windshield guy. Like when it comes to times in your life to change and, and, and and like next chapters i love locational chapters too my life has been a series of those um and i knew that moving to la was that it was like there's there's other things for me to achieve in dope there's other things for me to achieve in the music business both from an artistic and a managerial and a creative strategy marketing perspective and there's also other things for me to achieve in general and la is like made for someone with my disposition and work ethic and humility that I had had at that had finally stumbled onto at that point. And I guess I was 39 years old. So I was moving out to LA to turn 40 and like start this next grown up phase of my life. Um, 
and uh, it's, it's been very rewarding. I can't complain. I, I'm, 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 it's weird to say it out loud, but like that's almost eight years ago, man. Like I've been in LA 48, which feels like yesterday. Yeah. Uh, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. We moved to LA at the same, I've been in LA eight years too. Yeah, dude. 2014, I moved. Yeah, I moved here in 2014 in like in February and I turned 40 in March. Um. And, but again, it was, it was great. Like I've, I've done exactly what I wanted to do out here. I didn't know exactly what the path would be. And, and I, I explored and experimented since I've been out here and done some, some stuff that succeeded some stuff that never got off the ground, but like a bunch of different things. But, um, now my life is pretty complete with, with dope and everything going on with that with my involvement with static X, which has been decently documented, but not people don't really know the depths of work and effort that I've contributed to, to well, that. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, I, obviously there's certain things people keep asking you, but in just in terms of your involvement with the record, mm -hmm. um, how did you get in, involved with that? And, uh, and what it is that you actually did for them? Well, I produced the record. Yeah. So this is a hard one for me to answer without giving you a story. <laughs> um, so the first thing I did when I moved to L.A. in 2014 was I jumped on a really, really short West Coast tour with Wayne Static. And I did this purposely because I, again, being the... Dope, dope dude, or you were playing with his band? Dope. Okay. Yeah. So I moved to L.A. and I was like, all right. There's there's a lot here for me, but one of the things I really wanted to do was produce a record of like a band that I liked that was relevant. And I also kind of wanted was hoping that in that management process, maybe I could manage the band, too, because I, I knew that for me to do something like that, it was going to be one of those bands that was like, you know, it, it clearly wasn't still on a major label and was trying to figure it out. 
So I looked at Static X as such an obvious like opportunity being ignored. I'm looking at Wayne Static out on tour playing Static X songs. And I'm looking at Tony Campos playing in Fear Factory and and whatever else he's doing. He's always busy. And I'm going, all right, I played 300 shows with these guys back in 99 and 2000. They're the sweetest, easiest dudes I've ever met in my life. Not a hateful, venomous bone in either one of their body. How are these two guys not able to be Static X together? Yeah. This is ridiculous. I'm going to be the one that brings these guys back together. That's how it started. And I was like, okay. So I called the agent. I said, I want to do some shows with Wayne Static. And they said, well, actually, conveniently, Wayne wants to go do two weeks of West Coast dates. And like, it would be perfect. I was like, great. So we put it together. Got out to LA, went out and did those dates, reconnected with Wayne. Um, of course, I knew there was like a Yoko Ono thing happening. And I and and people closest to it really understood like serious drug sit drug situation going on. Well, there was a drug situation, but the which is which is obviously the the downfall of it. But there was a a wife that was also a drug situation. Yeah. So it was a perpetual circle of two people that were completely consumed by one another, both addicted, and both enabling one another. While ultimately the the touring lifestyle allowed it, yeah. So, but again, when I got on the tour, I wasn't aware. I was just like, I heard about this girl from wife girlfriend, and it's kind of crazy. But I was like, all right, let me. Uh, I can figure this out. And my simple logic was, I'm going to put dope and tour back, dope and static X back on tour together because it worked so well back in the day. People will love it again. And if I have to, I'll put Wayne and his wife on one bus with the crew and I'll put dope and the other three static X guys on the dope bus. I'll keep them separated. I'll be the manager. I'll run interference and I'll be the, I'll be the personality that can help these guys figure it out. So I got out there on tour with Wayne and I had some really productive conversations with Wayne. And there's no doubt in my mind that like all Wayne wanted was to play big shows. And it was like, he knew that playing as static X would be much bigger shows, but really what it was, it was about that Tony and his wife couldn't see eye to eye. Yeah. And it was like, well, Wayne, mate, we got to figure out how your wife can, can be your wife and the most important person in your life. But, but she has to respect some boundaries within the band because she's not in the band. But at that point, she and Wayne had kind of convinced himself that she was in the band. Like she would do signings and like everywhere Wayne went, she went and like Wayne was oh, like, this Oh, I saw it. We did some dude. festivals with them in 09 and they were like attached at the hip. It was crazy. So, so that's what I started to, to see. I was like, okay, this is going to be a challenge. And, and, and I didn't understand in the short time that I reconnected with Wayne on that tour, I didn't see the depth of the, of the drug addiction. And quite frankly, I didn't realize that until years after he passed away, when I was started working with static X and talking to people in the community and his family. And then I really learned the depths of it. So in retrospect, I think I could have brought him and Tony back together. I think I could have put band-aids on Wayne as so much so as thinking like rehab and the things that I think he would have needed to be strong enough to be able to go out there and do what I know he truly loved and wanted to do, which was front static X. But if I had to put my hand to God, 
I would say I think it would have been short lived. Yeah. Addiction is so brutal. And when you have a codependent situation, like it's very hard for me to imagine a world where Wayne went back and achieved the level of success that I know they would have. Um, and that he was, you know, and that he was just like bulletproof, like it is very hard to imagine, but doesn't change the fact that my hope and my goal was I wanted to bring those guys back together. So the last show that Wayne played in America was with dope in Southern California, Orange County, I believe it was in Pomona. And uh, that's where it was Pomona. And me and Wayne said our goodbyes. And we, and I was like, dude, when you get, he was going off to uh, China to play a big festival. And I was like, when you get back, send me those songs. Cause we've been talking about a bunch of songs he was working on. Send me those songs. And then let's start getting together and start figuring this out. And I knew that for Tony, it was easy. It was a phone call. It was hey Tony. I got a plan. Static X can work again. I talked to Wayne. He's down. You guys love each other. Like, let's just figure it out. And Tony would have been like, great. As long as the girl's not on stage with no shirt on swinging a shovel around, I'm willing to talk. <sighs> like that's what, that's the entry point for Tony. Really? It was as long as she's not on stage with no shirt on swinging a shovel around, I'm really open to almost anything. Um, and that was me and Wayne's conversation. Wayne went off to China. He came back a few weeks later and he died. Yeah. And we all know that. And I've mourned that. We've all mourned that. It's, it's fucking terrible. Um, so I always had this, this passion and this love and this connection to Static X. I, I it's going to sound a little goofy, but back in 1999, it was static or excuse me dope static x fear factor then it was dope static x seven dust then it was dope static x power man then it was just dope and static x twice around the country like we played so many shows together and they all they were always hotter than us and they always went on after us which is great but like i was still at the super young point in my career meeting all the fans every night so 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 wisconsin Trip was like the soundtrack to the beginning of my career like every night I'd be at the bar signing autographs and they're playing fucking loved up. And I'm just like, yeah, I love this band. I love the songs. I love this record. So I always had this connection to the sound and to the human beings. And then I, I, I felt that passion to bring the guys back together. I actually started the facilitation of that by meeting with Wayne and doing that tour. And then he passed away and it, it, it felt like unfinished business but it also felt like the ship had sailed. Yeah. And it wasn't until talking with Tony Campos about three years later where I was like, you know, dude, there's a, I got a couple feelings on this and it, and it started by me just sharing with them. Like it almost happened, Tony. I know you don't believe it, but it almost happened. And I shared all that with them. And then it was like, well, we know static X could be a band again. Like, you know, it could, because anything that has had that level of success, if you, if you, if you put a new singer in it, that's really good. And you go out and do it like Allison Chains, Judas Priest, like the list goes on and on. Like it's achievable. Yeah. But that, that, that didn't sound like super appealing. It was just like, what do, do you know where those songs are, Tony? Any chance that you ever heard the shit? He's like, no, but I think that... So we started just calling people. I called John Travis, one of his old producers. We called Eddie Ortel, his old sound guy. Um, and we were just like, 
do you have any old stuff that Wayne left behind? I just want to fucking hear it. And we started getting stuff and we started going like, man, there's, there's a, this sounds like static X. Like that riff is really cool. And the, the first, the first inkling we had was we had all this music from Wayne with no vocals on it, but they were, they weren't individual isolated tracks. It was just like, demos yeah you know, stereo mixed demos some of them had some vocals but most of it was kind of crap but the riffs were great we were like well maybe we should do like a snot thing maybe we should take all this awesome riffage that wayne left behind and we'll get all of wayne's friends to sing on it we'll get you know you know the 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 the, the list of all the dudes Bert, sure. and des and myself and um, you know, LeJean and, and hopefully Corey Taylor and Jonathan Davis. And we thought like that would be a really cool way to like pay our respects to Wayne and, and, and finish his last works. And as we were going through that process, and even as Tony made an announcement to the world that this was what he was going to do, we, um, we also decided that we were going to do a memorial tour. And that that was gonna was gonna be this this Static X record with all these guest vocalists, and then we were gonna do a memorial tour for Wayne. Kind of looked at it as like a one time thing, and we didn't know what we were gonna do about the vocalist yet. We knew I was probably gonna be the guy. We were like, yeah, you'll probably go up and sing. That's all, but but we didn't know what we were gonna do. Um, and I was like, I don't want to be the singer of Static X. Like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. That just feels fucking weird to me. Like, well, I'm going to, like, look at a picture of myself and go, like, which, is that a dope backdrop or a Static X backdrop? Like, that just didn't feel correct to me. Yeah. Um, But we hadn't even discussed that. That didn't even matter. It was just, we knew we were going to do a memorial tour. And like I said, we could have had a bunch of guest singers. Like, we just didn't know at the time. So as we're simultaneously working on music and we're, you know, and by this time we've reconnected with Koichi and Ken and those guys are all excited and trading ideas and Ulrich Wilde, the, the band's original producer who ended up mixing the record. Um, so we have all this great synergy going and now I'm trying to get ahead of the game and I'm going, where can we find the backing tracks for Static X? Because obviously if Static X is going to play live. We need all those sampled sounds and all the key sounds and all that shit. So who's got all that? So we put our feelers out and, and Static X back in the day, like most bands used to play the D88 machines. Mm. They were actually tape machines, eight track tape machines. So, so somehow a box of tapes lands on my desk and it's 10 D88 tapes. And I'm like, no one has any digital files of this. This is all anybody could find. And they're like wet and damaged. I'm like, fuck. And even the machines are hard to find in working condition. So I go on eBay and I buy six machines in bulk because I knew they were going to fail. It was going to be a disaster, but they were so cheap. Hook the machines up, the Pro Tools, and I throw in the first tape and started locating like, oh, here's the backing tracks for Push It. Great. So we do a, a memorial tour for Wayne. At least we know... The band can play Push It and kept on searching and searching. And then all of a sudden I come across this one tape. And uh, what a lot of people do when they're making demos with D88 tapes is they'll slave two machines together so that they can have 16 tracks to record on. Yeah. Eight tracks per tape. So I pop this tape into the machine and I hit play on it. And I have it all hooked up through Pro Tools. So I'm seeing all eight tracks at the same time. And one track has got like some kind of shaker sound. And the other track is just Wayne's voice. 
but he's not, it's not backing tracks. It's Wayne singing lead vocals. And I don't recognize the song. And you're like, what the fuck is this? I fast forward. There's another one. I fast forward and there's another one, another one. And then now I'm grabbing other tapes and I'm trying to find like, is there another tape that goes along with this? That's got guitars and drums or just something to go like these are songs, but that doesn't exist or the tape is destroyed, damaged, wet, whatever. So all I have is this one tape with all these effective acapellas and some programming. So I'm playing it over my speakers. I call Tony. I'm like, dude, what is this? I don't know. I never, never heard that one before. <laughs> I go, dude, come over. He jumps in his car. He comes over to my studio and he's like, dude, these, these are songs I'm, that he's like, I don't really have recollection of. He's like, and without hearing a band underneath it, I have no idea. And I go, dude, dig this. And I go, takes me five minutes. I, I got a click track mapped out now for one of his vocal tracks. And I go, why don't we get you, Ken and Koichi in a fucking room and let's put some evil disco original Wisconsin death trip band underneath these vocals. And dude, it was like magic. It was like, and, and we came to find that we had probably by the time it was all said and done, maybe 15 or 16 cuts of Wayne's voice. And some of it was crap. Some of that one tape. Yeah. One tape. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, maybe two tapes, but I think it was one tape. Um, no, it was one tape because Three of the songs that ended up making the record were off of, uh, they were outtakes from the Start of War album that never saw the light of day. And, and truthfully, after me and Tony listened to them, it was because the music was kind of like Static X was reaching. Like they were, they sounded like, like active rock of that moment, but yeah. the vocals were great and the hooks were great. So we took the same approach with those. We were just like, mute all the music, we don't care. And then we picked the best of the D88 tracks and we made you know we we put everything on tempo maps so i was like here's an idea at 88 bpm here's an idea at 90 bpm well they're both incomplete but we were able to combine them and like so we got real creative and, and ultimately made probably 14 or 15 songs that will wind up being probably 16 songs that were just wayne vocals and i think eight of them came out on version one volume one and like another eight will come out on volume two and then so, we had to put on, on, on the record um there's 12 tracks so is some of it is his vocals and some of it is not his vocals correct gotcha okay i didn't i, didn't, I don't think i was aware of that yeah there's four of the song four or five of the songs are by the band's touring vocalist mass guy zero and then one of them was al jorgensen gotcha. um so and on the new record it's the same way only there's no al jorgensen there's like four or five where we had the other dudes sing and and there's still a thought because we're not done with the record yet like we still might get some of our bros to come in and sing on it like i'd love to get lejean on a song it's just timing is everything and um burton would be great burton would be great absolutely and he's our dude we we love burton um we talked to him about it and he agreed to it a long time ago but once we found all those wayne vocals we kind of got sidetracked sure and then when we started filling in the gaps with zero's voice we were like ooh that like that sounds like static x like maybe putting burton's voice or lejean's voice on it it's going to make it sound like 
seven dust X. It's not really going to sound. So we were like, how authentic can it really sound without us bringing these guest vocalists in? And even when we brought in Al Jorgensen, it was on a song where Wayne had sang all the verses already. So you're like fully committed to it being static X. And then, and then all of a sudden Al comes in in the chorus and it was just like, wow. So I don't know, man, long story short, probably a lot longer story than you wanted, but, but this was a, it's been a very crazy human experiment and also been like, I'm not a meant to be as got kind of guy. And I'm not a, like everything happens for a reason kind of guy, but it, but it is very special and almost divine that like, here we were with this intention of like, let's do something for Wayne and let's get all his friends to sing on his instrumentals. And that became holy fucking shit. Here's Wayne back from the grave, dude, or from beyond the grave and no music. Like, why did that happen? Why did that other tape not find its way to my desk or was just digital clipping and wouldn't work? Like, why did that happen? Was it because my energy was right to put Tony and Ken and Koichi there and hit record and go like, dude, let's just get back to that energy of 1999. And that's all they did. It was like, if the riff didn't sound like that, it was like, no, nah, nah, nah. like we're not trying to invent static X 2024 here. Like this was all about like a nostalgic established sound and four original guys, including Wayne and we're going to substitute some vocals here and there and fill some gaps with some faceless character who has no relevance to any of this whatsoever. Because as long as we never put another face to Static X, Wayne will always be the face of Static X, which I think is appropriate. Um, and it allows a lot of things to occur. It allowed the band to make an amazing record, which it really is. Like when you think about how the record became, it really is an amazing achievement and it, and it's really good. And the fans really did enjoy it. And me as a fan, I really did. So the band made a great record. They went and toured the world and celebrated the legacy and the life of, of the band's fallen singer and connected with all those fans, massive sold out shows. And they did it without saying, we have a new singer. Here's our new guy. We're moving into the future. They did it by saying, this is about the legacy act of static X and about all the things that were established and the connections that were made 20 years ago. And the, the fact that they were able to go out and give people that Wisconsin death trip experience and like in the lights after a couple beers, you squint and you go, damn, that dude's hair standing straight up and he's playing the guitar and he sounds a lot like Wayne static. That's fucking awesome. Like people got their static X experience, man. And his family came to the shows and they fucking cried. And it was, it was, and of course the fans forget it. Um, it's really an amazing accomplishment, man. It really, it's a really cool thing. And I'm, I'm really proud of those guys because they're all really good dudes and they all love the band and they all love Wayne and they all love what they created together. And I feel very familiar to the fan base because of all the shows that we played together and my connectivity to those same fans, having stood on all those stages with them and saying to them every night before they went on. And then when we did the Memorial tour for Wayne and dope went out and opened those shows too, it was like, here I am. What's up motherfuckers. We're back here. It is 20 years later. And you're familiar with this tone and this voice and static X is going to come up here in an hour and they're going to fucking level you. And they're going to do it without our dude here. 
That's fucking inconceivable. Yeah, it's 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 an extremely unique circumstance for something to work out that way. And and you know uh, you know I had Tony on on the show and we talked about it a little bit about this kind of disconnect between you know you'll a news piece will kind of end up on a metal website and the comment section will kind of rip on the concept and then you go and see the actual shows and like you said they're sold out people are losing their minds and they're the people who actually care clearly the ones who were who who there are are getting a lot out of it and including his family yeah which was yeah, like yeah. that was the one that always hit me i'm like the people that would talk shit it's like bro you going on the static x message board or whatever and and insulting tony or ken or koichi or or anybody involved in this it's a cash grab or like you fucking wayne would hate this like dude all i can say to you is that i don't think i how to put this correctly um You know what? I don't even want to complete the statement because I, I like the fact that like everybody, you can have your own fucking opinion. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, all, all I know is you are correct. Like the, the, the people that talk the most shit were the people that were the most like had no skin in the game whatsoever. And it just, it just bothered me that like people would say such nasty shit, which I kind of look like, like that, that's like driving by the dude's memorial and like yelling out your window, something negative at his family who's like putting this memorial together with the people that were closest to him. It's like, you're a fan and I respect that you're a fan and you loved Wayne static and you have your own opinion. But like, do you really think that all these people that are involved, like that could clearly veto this, like the people that are in control of the Wayne static estate could go like, no, absolutely not. And it's not as if this thing went out there and generated millions of dollars. Like the money that was made on this did not change people's lives. And and a lot of that is contributed to the, to the the product that was put out. Like yeah, the, big production. Dude, like so much was invested to make it done correctly. Um, that you'd have to be a fool to not see the depth of it all, and to go like I'm gonna yell out my window that I think what you guys are doing is wrong. It's like, dude, like uh, like how simple minded are you to just not like if if this was wrong and the people that that cared the most about this guy thought it was wrong it wouldn't be happening like it, yeah. it, and none of us would would want to do something that had that kind of energy around its nucleus like the energy around the nucleus of this thing was nothing but love like that's all anybody ever talked about and the music listening to it and working on it it was always about like it had to be up to a certain standard or like it wasn't happening. Why? Because we love and respect dudes so much. Like dude sitting on my shoulder going like, bro, we'll fuck this up. It's like, I got you, man. Like you're good. Well, I, I love your passion about it. Like even the way how you, you kind of like, Hey, I'm going to tell you a story here, you know, because it, it, there's a lot to this. Right. And, and your kind of level of uh, commitment and kind of emotional attachment, um, because of how how close you were and how much you care ab about it, you know. But even like listening to a lot of your songs, dope songs, through the years, a lot of that stuff sounds like it could be a Static X song. Like in terms 100%. of you clearly were influenced and, um, you know, by that sound, and that's kind of 
to some degree that sound is a little part of what you create and what it's you why create. it's why we shared so many fans it's why our mm-hmm. bands work so well touring together yeah it's why is it's why i have felt so comfortable in this very awkward position that i find myself in and why i've also been so able to not want to have it be about me yeah well i, I don't know if you've noticed i, I haven't asked you uh, question a question that you've been asked quite a bit because per, mainly because you've already answered the question right you've already uh so that stuff is is out there but how do you feel about um you know like I said you're you're promoting some new dope music and record that's that that's coming out but clearly as you do interviews that there's going to be scrutiny right there's people going to want to know certain things how, how have you kind of been have you been handling it in this interview kind of the same way as you're talking to me, or is it just something you're, yeah, I haven't felt like you're any, I haven't felt any scrutiny. No one, no one ever scrutinizes anything I've done with static X to my face. Like right. everybody goes like the, the most I've ever gotten out of anybody is somebody who's like, you know, I'll be honest with you. Ed, so like, before I saw it live, I was skeptical, but when I saw it, I was like, Oh my fucking God, I'm, I'm so happy. These guys are doing this. So like, no, no, I don't. I don't even mean uh, from a negative standpoint. I just mean in terms of like uh, wanting to know details or secrets or, or just what people just. What do you want to know? I'll tell you anything you want to know. Like I, I, I don't <laughs> feel like the only thing I'm not willing to do is I don't want to be the singer of Static X. Like yeah. I've never wanted to stand in front of a microphone and sing "Push It." with a static X backdrop behind me and go, hi, I'm Edsel of, of static X. Like that's not going to happen. Like I'm, there is only ever going to be one living, breathing singer of static X as far as I'm aware. And that's Wayne static. If the static X guys decide that they someday want to get another singer and they want to hire some dude and his name is Bob Johnson and he stands in front of a microphone with no mask and he just plays and they go, our new singers, Bob Johnson. Cool. I'm I'm not down for that. I I don't know if I would be involved if they did it. Like maybe I would if I really am a big fan of Bob Johnson, but I haven't met the guy yet. <laughs> um, but as far as you know, the current level of involvement that I have, um, I'm I just have never been interested in being a singer of Static X. But there was a void that needed to be filled in order for Static X to be able to go out there and do what they wanted to do, and respectfully, the void is a pretty fucking substantial one. And like the role that that dude is playing, like you're singing and playing someone else's words and phrases and like, and you're, and you're consciously making a decision to say, Hey, pay no attention to the man at the center of the stage, wearing the mask, making this fucking thing pop, pay no attention to him. But if he fucks up, you guys are going to massacre that guy. You're going to fucking tell everybody how fuck. And that's the best compliment I can pay is that that's not the narrative. Yeah. And believe me, there's a lot of people that love to make that the narrative, but the truth is everybody that sees it and has absorbed it, they can't say that it didn't deliver and that dude under the mask didn't do his job and didn't give Wayne the respect that Wayne deserves. So for all of us sitting in a room and discussing like, how are we going to do it? I think just the overwhelming consensus was, well, let's not replace Wayne. Let's represent him. How do you represent him? Well, I always felt like it can't be a static X show unless the dude singing his hair standing straight up. Like that's just because 
Wayne wasn't just the singer of Static X, but he was like the mascot. Like yeah. you could just do an outline of his of the hair on a T-shirt and everyone would know that was Static X. So I don't see how you could do a 20th anniversary memorial to Wayne Static and not have that be an important element to giving people an authentic Wisconsin death trip experience. Like you're in the back of the room. You need to see that. Um, so again, whether it's me or Bob Johnson, I think that would look really dumb for, for someone like me to just spike my hair out and go out there and hold a guitar and sing, push it. You'd be like, that's really whack. <laughs> so then it became, okay, again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to harness the experience. We're trying to give people an experience. So let's create an entity. Let's, let's, let's make a mass figure that has the, the, the essence with the hair and of course would play guitar and sing. And it, as long as that person can deliver the audio and deliver the performance and do it right, it'll work or it won't. And that was our vision for it was that we felt like that would be the best way to represent Wayne, to give people a Wisconsin death trip experience. And for the person that's coming in to help those three, excuse me, those four guys, Wayne, Ken, Tony, and Koichi, the guy that's coming in to help them. Um, for that guy's number one priority to do what's best for Static X, not what's best for his own Instagram or his own desire to be recognized. It's like it's not. A, it's about giving Static X fans and, of course, giving Wayne the respect, but the experience that's going to make them go like that was familiar and that felt as right as you can do it like but but yes it's strange i get it and I, you know as a guy that helped sit in the room and 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 summarize surmise how we were going to do it i i understand and acknowledge that it's strange yeah um but it it's the only way that it felt like it made sense there was a we if you watch there's a music video that we did for a song called bring you down and in the video same dude zero wearing a helmet with like this x face on it which we were able to like make into a digital screen and put wayne's face on it because it was a song that wayne actually sang yeah. that was really cool and we were like well what if we did something like that live but we were like well but you don't want to put wayne's face on it live because it's not wayne's voice yeah. so since we had committed at a very early page so we were like we weren't going to have static x go out there and play to backing vocal tracks that just felt soulless like you might as well do a fucking hologram like no one wants to go see a live band play to a pre-recorded vocal like that's not cool so it was like there's gonna have to be a human being there but then that helmet like what was that and again it was like the helmet doesn't have the hair so everybody has their own idea of like what they think they would do but I guarantee it they haven't put anywhere near the amount of thought into it that the people that actually did the work did and I really believe that this was a really unique and and obviously based on the results, a successful way. But I just believe that is is the most authentic way. Um, and uh, I'm you know I don't mind talking about it because I work my ass off on it, and and I'm very proud of it. Um, and and I remain as committed as ever to to. Uh, helping my friends and helping them to also too, when I was putting all this together with them, like 
Static X had never released an album that wasn't on either Warner Brothers or Reprise. Like they were always a major label band because they disbanded in like 09. So, um, you know, that was another thing. It was like sitting there with Tony and the guys and going like, dudes, like it's not going to be like it was 10 years ago. It's not going to be going back to Reprise and they're going to be like, oh yeah, great. We're just going to put you in the studio, with, you know, Josh Abraham and give you a big budget. It's going to be like, we're going to have to do this the, the indie way. And I already had the infrastructure for that. And, you know, the, the 20 years of independent experience. So I brought a lot to them for, for helping to make them not only figure out how to make this record and properly respect and support and represent Wayne, but also like how to like make the rubber meet the road with becoming an independent band and, and, and having what I like to, to refer to as a direct fan to band relationship like yeah. there's nobody in between yeah i mean and that's what they have now you're like you're i'm saying you're like the manager you're the producer creative director right creative yeah so i'm saying you're just well, i'm just saying you you can do a lot uh yeah. you, you, you wear a lot of hats and you you, you wear them well yeah. uh but i think that's very well well put you know just in terms of setting up that that whole situation um and great guys dude pussycat guys like guys had never heard a fly and like you hear people, you know, give them a hard time. And, and this, hey, doggy. Sorry, I was my, my puppy's oh, been my puppy's been underneath me the whole time. But all good, man. This this might not even like be appropriate to say, but but I feel like it it doesn't hurt to say this just because some people are so fucking ignorant. Like the 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 very small percentage of people that have cast stones at this and directed their venom directly at Tony or Ken or Koichi. It's almost as if those people like blame Tony or Ken or Koichi for Wayne's not being here. And it's like, dude, like with all due respect, like we all wish Wayne was here. Like you don't think I would be super stoked. Like static X was just on that big Rob zombie tour. And I was out with those guys and just like helping make everything happen. And, you don't think I would have been the happiest guy in the world if one of those assholes who goes on the message board and tells Tony that he hates him, if that guy would have pulled up in his car and been like, guess who I brought and opens the fucking door and out pops our old buddy Wayne Wells static and goes, I was all an act. I'm fucking here to rock guys. You don't think that like we would all be so fucking happy that our friend is here and he's healthy and we can hug him and, and give him a guitar and go, dude, go do what you do. We love and miss you. This is so great, but that's not fucking possible. And it's not Ken or Koichi or Tony's fault. Like they're here. Like static X is on the fucking on the, on the board and they got their instruments and they're here. So I, I just find it to be ignorant that anyone would like have any harsh feelings towards the guys that like helped build this thing, helped create the sound like that Wisconsin death trip album was like Tony's voices all over that record. Ken wrote half those fucking lyrics. Koichi was the evil disco programming fucking guru. The riffs are a combination of, of Wayne and Koichi and, and Tony. And then of course, Wayne's voice put it over the top. Like Wayne was a fucking so good. Yeah. Such an amazing recipe. But those four guys made that recipe and to like have ill feelings towards those other guys because they they like came back together 
at the 20th anniversary of this amazing piece of art that they created. And then they, they thought of a thoughtful way to celebrate it and memorialize their friend, but you don't agree with it. Like people are just fucking stupid, man. I don't know. I, I probably harked on that too much, but um, I just love those guys. They're super sweet people. They never heard a fly. Anything that was ever bad that was ever uttered from Wayne or from any of those guys about the other one, it was all fucking hurt feelings. It wasn't that they didn't love each other and didn't care about each other to the day they that Wayne passed away. It's just that when you're hurt, you say shit. When you're mad, you say shit. And that's what it was. And it's, but they're all great guys and I love them all. And uh, I feel the same way about Wayne and he's the most, when you know knowing Wayne as well as I did back in the late 90s early 2000s like he's the last person you would ever expect to have succumbed to drugs and alcohol the way that he did and it's a horrible sad story and we could we could do a whole fucking episode on that and I could just psychoanalyze where that went wrong and, and yeah. all that shit but it's a shame it happens way too often to way too many people but there's nothing you can do for someone that's in that state except for try to reason with them but no one gets clean because they're told to get clean. They have to want to do it. Yeah, they have to want it and be committed to it and willing to suffer for it and and rethink and relearn how to exist on planet Earth without it because they've become dependent on it. And no one can do that for you. Um, and it's a it's a real shame. Um, but I, I you know I have nothing but respect for that guy as a human being. He's always treated me wonderfully. And he was a super, super warm guy. I have an amazing relationship with his sister. And oh, I say really his all of his siblings, but in particular, his sister, Amy, and, and his mom and dad, like they've all become like this little extended version of my family because I just feel this connection to them and this accountability to them. Um, and they're very, you know, they're very proud and, and super grateful that like, you know, let me say this, that like they know their son didn't go out on top. Like when Wayne passed away in America, like I was on those shows, dude, like dope was never super big on the West coast and static X was, and those shows that dope and static X went out and played like, you know, over there 200 people, 300 people, like they weren't big shows. So, and he was not the best version of himself. You mean with Wayne static solo? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, so his family, like they're well aware that like when Wayne left this earth, he wasn't being celebrated by the fans. He wasn't, they weren't showing up in droves to like honor him, which is all the more reason that I feel like the people that don't get it, see it so wrong. Is it like, regardless of what you think, like Wayne static is more on the minds and in the hearts of the fans than he's ever been. Like, where were the thousands of people that go see Static X play on a regular basis now? Where were those people when Wayne was alive at the end? They had tuned out. They had gone like, ah, it's not Static X anymore. It's just Wayne Static, and he's kind of fucked up, and it's not, not the best version of himself, and wish him all the best, but, like, it wasn't thriving. Um, And when we came back and did that 20th anniversary memorial tour for him, dude, it was thriving and it still is thriving. And I think a lot because of the decisions that the band has made for how they're representing it and how they're respecting it. Like it's still thriving for like all the right reasons. And every time the band plays, 
I really feel like the fans like feel like Wayne is part of it. Like they feel like he's, and a lot of that's because there's not a new face to it. The band isn't going like, look at us moving into the future. And that's what most bands that replace their singers do. They really make it a point to show you how they've moved into the future and how they can exist with the new guy. Static X took a completely different approach. It's not about the future. Yeah. I don't think that it should be. I don't think anybody that's going to show up to see Static X play live is going to be like, if only they would play all the new songs with the with the mask guy singing, I would be happy. It's like, you might want to hear some of that, but you really want to hear Wisconsin Death Trip, and you really want to hear the hits from the, like, that's what you love. So that's that's what that's what me, that's my influence, and that's what the, the, the members of Static X felt was the priority and remain committed to. Right it's not on. about the future. It's about the legacy. Right on, man. Well, speaking of, of the future, I think this is a, is a pretty good, good place to wrap up. But before we go, I just wanted to ask you, when is this uh, the new dope record, Blood Money Part Zero, coming out? And are you touring on it? Is it more, or is it like back to more normal stuff? Or is it like just kind of this like the new the new era and new approach? So, um so again, dope. Ever since I left that GMR gig and I moved out to LA, and even you know during that phase, like as you mentioned, dope has taken longer in between albums because my life is much more full. Yeah. Um, and that's still the case. Like, and I think that's also one of the reasons that dope has has done very well for ourselves, and we've built such a big following on on uh, on uh, Spotify and things. One point seven million month listeners. That's huge. Dude, I, I know. I, and thank you for saying that. It, it really is crazy. Um, and um, so I think a lot of that is attributed to the fact that the band doesn't overplay and we don't oversaturate the market and we we don't like expect so much of our fans. Like a lot of bands kind of abuse their fans. Like they're constantly putting out shit. They're constantly being supported by those fans' wallets. And I don't ask my fans for much on a very you know common basis. So um so the last tour that Dope did was the 20th anniversary tour with Static X. And it was the 20th anniversary of Wisconsin Death Trip, the memorial, the memorial to Wayne, and also the 20th anniversary of Felons and Revolutionaries. So that was like a, a perfect everything wrapped in one ball and was very easy and, and super successful. Um, but I was working behind the scenes on Static X throughout that whole thing. So there was no new dope record in the marketplace. Like in many ways, dope was like, it was a great opportunity for dope to be there and play to those huge crowds. But I didn't have any new music because I was so focused on helping Static X complete their goal. Um, this time around, I do have a new record. And the next tour that we're doing is the 20th anniversary of Static X's second album, The Rise of the Machine Tour, also the 20th anniversary of Dope's Die, Motherfucker, Die. This tour was originally supposed to take place in 2019. Or excuse me, 2019, the other tour took place. It was supposed to be in 2020, 2020 or 2021? 2021, but COVID hit. Yeah. So then it got postponed to 2022. COVID was still here. It got postponed again to 2023. So same thing, the Dope record was scheduled to come out in my own head along with the tour. So, um, so the next tour we're doing is February, March, April of 2023. It's static X fear factory dope with special guests, mushroom head and twisted on a handful of dates and yeah, the big new tour. Dope, yeah. And the new dope uh, record comes out simultaneously, but the way I'm doing the dope records, I'm just giving away the digital version of the album for free. So all you got to do is go to our website, which is dopetheband.com and add the free item to your cart and check out 
And then every time we release a new single, it just gets emailed to you. And then by the, by the time the album release date happens, all the singles will have been delivered. So, so far, I think we've put out three songs, two music videos, and like every three to four weeks between now and February, we'll drop a new song or a new music video. And by the time we get to February and the tour starts, the whole album will be out. Um, there is a physical product. If anybody gives a fuck, there's a cool vinyl and a digi pack that you can buy and they're all autographed. And of course we have a bunch of cool merch, but if you're just interested in the music, it's free. And if you're just interested in the concert, buy a concert ticket. When is it out? When is the record out? Well, I mean, it's, it's three songs are out now, but the final song gets released in February. So I don't even know the exact date. I so just right, it'll like, get right up until when the tour happens. Yeah. So the first week the tour starts, the last single is released. And if you bought a digital ver or excuse me, a physical version, I think it gets shipped out sometime shortly after. Gotcha. But vinyl manufacturing, it may be late. I don't even know. But um, but the album, it's kind of weird because it's like the album street date is February. It's like, but it's already out. Like you can go to Spotify and listen to three songs right now. And like yeah. three weeks from now, there'll be a fourth. And six weeks from now there'll be a fifth like drip 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 coming out yeah just dripping it out but and, and doing it for free because again like i just i just liked the idea i just thought that like the fans have always supported this band and if you're into buying a t-shirt or a digipack or something cool like that awesome i appreciate your support but if you're just jamming the music dude like you can listen to it for free on spotify what fucking right do i have to charge you for a digital version of it like that just seems stupid to me so i'm happy to just give it away and uh just grateful to the fans but it's nice to finally put another dope record out after all these years um it's a cool record it's not the greatest thing i've ever done in my life um <laughs> i don't know if i'll ever do you know the greatest thing i've ever done in my life i don't even know what that is when it comes to dope i'm so close to it but it's dope it's authentic you know i i wrote it i i played it i have my band dudes who contribute their parts and they're all my dudes and they're all super awesome but like I produced it, and I fucking mixed it. Like it's agonizing, dude. When when I wear all those hats and and I don't even want to, it's part of what makes the process take so long. But it's the only way I get to the finish line. Yeah. Um. So I'm really happy to be at the finish line and just to be able to put this album out. And if I have it my way, I will never put another full length album out again. I'll just become a singles band and I'll just put out songs when I want to. But I felt like because there had been so long since Blood Money Volume One. And I had given so much to Static X and it's like, I sort of, I sort of felt like I owed it to the fans to do the follow up to blood money, or in this case, it became the prequel to blood money to, but at least put a bow around that since it was blood money part one to go like, here's your second edition. And I'm very proud of it, but like, it doesn't end here, but it, you also aren't going to have to wait five more years for another one of these, because from this point on, I'm just going to put out shit when I like it and just share it with you for free. And if I make a music video, I make a music video, but, and eventually if enough songs get put together that they can become a new collection and we can make a vinyl of it or something, well, that sounds cool too. But I don't feel, I don't ever want to feel the pressure of making a full length album and doing all It's just, I'm not into it anymore, but I hope people like this record. It's very wide. Right on, right on, brother. Well, thank you so much for, for being the guest on the show, man, uh, and uh, being generous with your time and sharing so much uh, kind of intimate details of everything that you have going on. And it's it's been, for me, super illuminating and uh, super interesting. And I just, I've had a great time, man. Thank you so much, all right? 
Awesome, dude. Listen, I really appreciate it. I just want to end this by telling you that I'm a super private dude. Yeah. Because I, because I don't talk to anybody and I don't go anywhere and all I do is work. Yeah. But I do enjoy this back and forth forum. Yeah. And I appreciate guys like you being committed to creating these platforms. Um, but I would love to come back sometime and not tell my story because I've already done that now. Okay. But I'd love to come back and just shoot the shit about more current events and our opinions on things. And just like, I love that. I think that people would enjoy that too. Cause you like, I like, I like what you bring to the table and your perspective on things, but in a, in a very one-sided long form, like tell me the story of your life, Edsel, there's not a lot of back and forth that takes place. And I think that the fans would have really enjoy that of, of the two of us too. And to hear some of your stories and just to trade back and forth, on current events and shit like that. Like I'd be all about that. So it's all know. good, man. It's, it's so, you want to do that. Sometimes you got to, uh, you have to let the conversation go where, go where it goes. And this was, you know, it was a little more autobiographical and in, in nature, but that's okay. Because I, I felt like everything you said was, uh, was really interesting and, and super valid. And, and it, now I, I, I know your story in a really, right. the people listening to know your story in a really great way. So I, it was enjoyable. Yeah. I would love awesome. to be back on. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. And, and unfortunately for me, I kind of feel like that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of doing the rounds with guys like you and some other dudes that kind of do what you do, where I'm I'm pretty much just telling the story because I've never told it. Yeah. So if I don't tell it, it doesn't get told. So yeah. this and a lot of times, and a lot of times it's also for my own personal curiosity because sure. you know, I've peripherally fo followed dope like i don't know all the in in, in sure. so for for me just getting all this is like oh i'm i'm learning at the same time i think the listeners are learning and i and it's that there's a lot of value in that yeah no well, well i appreciate the platform to be able to tell my story and in many ways like reintroduce myself to a lot of the community in our world that hasn't really met me in many 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 years like they may have flirted with my my art or my or my work but I don't I haven't done a lot of this in many, many years. So I appreciate the forum to do it, but I look forward to uh doing more of this in the future because I do enjoy it, but not having it feel so autobiographical because I won't have to keep doing that because people know what the fuck my story is. Cause it's all it's all good. I, I've told it. It's all uh, good. Thank you so much, man. You have a great day. And I'll, you know, I'll let you guys know when this is all out. All right. You got it, dude. I'll tell AC you said hello and uh, good good luck with everything you do. Definitely, brother. Take care, man. This has been great. Easy, brother. I appreciate yeah. you. Bye-bye. There, man.
So that was Dope with their new song. One of their new songs entitled Believe. That hook, man, just gets me. That's a, I really, really enjoy that song. And I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Edsel. Huge thanks to him uh, for being on the show. Huge thanks to Kevin Chiramonti for hooking up the interview and yeah, that was just like I said. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know him that well, or I didn't know him at all before that. And I feel like I got to know him really well during that conversation. And I think he has just a lot of great insights and and just uh, individuals like him that have been around for so long. And uh, you know, just the consistency and the hard work and the kind of entre- entrepreneurial spirit is something I'm always always really fascinated and impressed by. So huge thanks to him for being on the show. And I'll be on the lookout for new dope stuff as well as you should be. Uh, I guess what's going on with me? I'm just got a long ass tour in front of me. (laughs) I'm basically going to uh, this tour gets done December 15th. I'm going to try and get these out as much as I can. I think I have one or two in the can already. Can't remember. I I have one with Johnny Santos ready to go. So I have, I have some shit coming out. It's going to be fine. But I'm maybe thinking about getting some people who live in Europe, uh, you know, since I'm over here and it's kind of trying to organize the time zones and stuff is a little bit tough, but just figuring out between days off and, you know, trying not to spend all my money on hotels on days off, but it might have to be like that in order to get some stuff happening with the show. But anyway, uh, I don't really have anything else to talk about, but besides uh, Kanye West, which I <laughs> I just uh, I did a little quick hit. I think I'm going to put that out maybe in a week or two, just a little bit, kind of covering some of my stuff on that. I, I literally think I could do a whole podcast on Kanye West because uh, it's infinitely fascinating to me uh, in good and bad ways. So anyway... Without further ado, I'm going to get out of here. It sucks. I'm, I'm missing all the basketball games because of the time difference. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. I'm going to miss like the first, basically, third of the damn season. So it is what it is. Love y'all. Be good. Keep rocking. Mama's out. Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.